Welcome to this episode of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello, brought to you by Canada's number one skincare brand and the one that I have been using for over 18 years, Dermalogica. Over that time, my skin concerns have changed from acne care when I was in my late teens and 20s, hyperpigmentation during my pregnancy, and now aging skincare. I've been using the pre-cleanse oil since the first day I started working in television because it is so good at melting away layers of makeup. It leaves my skin ultra clean. And I am obsessed with a daily microfoliant. That's a rice-based enzyme powder exfoliant, and it leaves my skin smoother and brighter and is one of the only products to also get rid of my blackheads. Listen, I love this brand and they love their customers. So if you spend $50 or more at dermalogica.ca and use the code AGINGPOWERFULLY, you will receive an exclusive gift. You can also find their products at Sephora and professional skin centers across Canada. Tag me in your photos with your products and I'll repost them on my social media. Um, Listen, a big thank you to Dermalogica. Now let's begin the show. Welcome, everyone, to the latest edition of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So many of you have been reaching out. You've been leaving reviews. You've been um, sending me commentary, the things that you really, really enjoy, the things that you want to hear. Please keep doing that. I am deeply, deeply appreciative. It just helps guide as I produce all of these segments uh, to tailor them to what you want to hear and the information that you want to get. So thank you for that. Please keep that up. And today is an episode that a lot of you have been asking for because we are talking about the S word today. That's it. Hold on to your seats, ladies and gentlemen. It is the S-E-X episode. And nothing gets people more charged, I think, in all kinds of ways than the topic of sex. But here's the question. Where did you first learn about it, if at all? And how much more education did you get in adulthood about sex? Now, was it always in the context of reproduction, for example? Maybe it was avoiding pregnancy or trying to get pregnant. Or did you ever specifically learn about pleasure? Like many of you listening, I remember super duper awkward conversations in sexual health classes. That was back in elementary school. It was almost always in a co-ed setting. What were they thinking? And what happens in that age range in a co-ed setting? A lot of snickering, laughing, a lot of fidgeting in our chairs. And that was pretty much it. After that, how did I get sex ed? It was through friends. We were talking um, about when we started getting our periods, uh, growing hair in new places, and maybe eventually talking to your closest friends about getting to like first base, second base, and then the big, oh my gosh, losing your virginity. And there was a lot of sharing, uh, but who knows really how accurate any of that information actually was. Probably venture to guess a lot of it was really, really off base. Let's fast forward into adulthood because I don't know about you, but I never got more formal education about sex until I was maybe in my mid thirties. And when did that happen? Why did that happen? Because I was trying to conceive. My husband and I had been talking about a child. We'd been married for five years and we thought, okay, now's the right time. And then guess what? We started to experience infertility and we didn't know why. And that is when I then started to learn more about like sex and sex ed, follicles, eggs, hormones, ovulation, cycle tracking. 
but there was nothing about sex itself per se. It was about being utilitarian, right? There was a purpose. It was not about pleasure. It was about a purpose, trying to get pregnant. Let's fast forward a little bit later in life. Um, maybe now you've had a child or children. Maybe you've been with the same partner for a long time. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're just back on the dating scene after a divorce. How much education have you had about sex now? How has something like perimenopause and menopause affected your sex life? Is great, fun, mind-blowing sex, is that even still possible in your 40s and 50s and 60s, 70s, heck, even older? Well, it is time, if you ask me, to bring back sex education, but for adults only. And that is what this episode is all about. It is time to get candid about desire, pleasure, sexual dysfunction, orgasms, the orgasm gap between women and men, painful sex, dry vaginas, erectile dysfunction, we're going there, masturbation, sexless relationships, shame, diseases in sex, intimacy, drugs, treatments, porn, and so much more. This is the episode that you wanted, but were too embarrassed to ask for. So it is time to break the silence and end the stigma. This is Adult Sex Ed 101 with family physician and sex educator, Dr. Sheila Wajayasinghe. Welcome to the podcast, Aging Powerfully. Dr. Sheila, it's great to see you. So good to see you, Mel. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm super excited to chat about this with you. Me too. Okay, yes. I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm going to rename this podcast to Aging Powerfully with Great Sex. Oh, I think. Perfect. Uh, because I think that um, listeners are going to get a lot of information, as I always hope with this podcast, that's going to give them ammunition and motivation to not just ask for and get um, great sex with others or maybe just with yourself, but also like in the 40 plus range, which is like my era and beyond. So we're going to get into really, really great stuff, informative stuff, juicy stuff. So first, uh, I want to get into how you found your way. I know you're a family physician. So how did you find your way into this area of medical training and, and why? Well, we don't actually get this in medical training. So this is an area that I've always been really interested in. In medical school, we did not get any actual tr specific training around sex and pleasure in sex. We actually had a lot of education around diseases and STIs, and we did talk about erectile dysfunction, but when it came to speaking about arousal and desire and pleasure, it was really left out of our curriculum. And so when I came through medical school, that wasn't part of our discussions. I always had a curiosity about it because I found it interesting, but also growing up in my own home, it was certainly not something that we spoke about at all. And still to this day, it's one of these areas when I'm on the show, I never actually tell my parents about the episodes that I'm talking about sex. <laughs> and I need to get over that because this is now what I want to do is to share and to spread information to support people. Because I, what I found then in residency and onwards, I took a special interest in, in sexual health. I worked in sexual health clinics. The majority of the time, a lot of my patients came from that into my regular practice. And because I had the ability to talk about this topic that is so taboo for so many people, I was able to then open up in other ways this relationship with my patients that was more trusting to talk about other topics that they had never spoken about with their with their doctors prior to this time because it felt like it was unsafe. And so it was just such a beautiful foray into opening a discussion that can be 
fun. It can be scary for people. It, but if we can create a safe space within medical settings to talk about it and normalize things in a way that is so powerful. And I, I think that's where we can make changes to realize it is possible to enjoy intimacy. It is possible to have these conversations with yourself, with your partners, with your, hopefully your healthcare providers, which is the impetus for why I did my extra training in sex therapy work. Now I'm not a sex therapist, but I'm, I like to educate. So we're doing that with healthcare providers to be able to create safe spaces. So our patients feel safer in discussing these topics. Well, thank goodness that you decided and other colleagues are deciding to take it upon yourself to extend your own training for the benefit of your patients. There's only upsides to this. I feel like that's going to be the first of many euphemisms that's going to happen in this discussion. <laughs> but let's move on. I do want to remind everybody who's watching and listening that the information being discussed today, it is for education purposes only. And I always encourage people to uh, speak to your healthcare professional about your individual situation for your appropriate care, because this is not a replacement for medical advice. Uh, my goal here and today with Dr. Sheila, it's to provide you with information that you can then take on so that you can get the information and care that you need for your specific situation. So with that in mind, I have so many questions and we're going to begin with this and and move forward in the spirit of no shame, no judgment, lots of fun and great information. And I'll start with this. I read a report from uh, the Cleveland Clinic just a few years ago, back in 2020, and it said that 43% of women and 31% of men report some degree of sexual dysfunction, but that the highest dissatisfaction is in midlife, which they categorize as 40 plus, which is both kind of surprising in some ways, but it's also really, really sad because that's my demographic. So is this true, right? Yeah, like, is mm -hmm. this true? And if so, what is happening at that particular time in our ages and life? So I think the field of sexual health and understanding sexual research is really expanding right now. And so that study is really interesting because there are other studies that actually show that midlife is a time of sexual awakening for many people, because it is a time that people are feeling more free in their bodies. They have more confidence. They're not worried about potential of getting pregnant. So there's a freedom that comes with this time in our lives, although 40s, you can still get pregnant. So I always want to like make sure that that's still, <laughs> if that's an issue. But, you know, the interesting thing about that study is that it's not untrue in that people do notice that sometimes this can be a time of change and shift in their own desire. And desire in particular is, you know, it's such a complex interplay of so many different factors, our emotional state, our psychological state, what's going on in our environment around us. And so it's not just like, am I ready to go? There's actually so many different factors at play that come together to create desire and arousal. And it's sort of like our accelerator and break. Emily Nagoski, who writes these beautiful books around um, sex and intimacy, talks about the accelerating the break patterns and understanding that there are certain things that really turn us on and understanding what those are is really important. And there are things that cause us to pause. And that is a complex interplay that happens again, based on those multiple multitude of factors. When it comes to midlife, you know, there's so many factors in terms of 
our physical aging and the changes that can happen physically in our bodies. So a lot of what your podcasts have so beautifully done so far is talk about the changes in midlife related to menopause and, and the perimenopause time. And that in itself is a time specifically that when I work with my patients, it can be a time where we see a decrease in desire significantly because of physical changes related to vaginal dryness, pain that can happen as a result of that. If you're having pain, you're not going to want to have any intimacy or intercourse in that sense. And that changes things and it makes it difficult the next time that you may want to engage in, in play. Um, it happens in men too, where we see that libido changes happen around this time, erectile dysfunction issues become more prominent. And there are those physical changes that we have to talk about that might also be related to conditions of that, that happen as we age, like diabetes, which is can happen with microvascular changes or arterial changes that is very much related to blood flow. And blood flow is key to arousal and desire as well. And so that's another piece. So we look at diseases are becoming more prominent. It's also a time when I talk to my patients at this time, it's interesting, and I myself and yourself too, I'm sure, Mel, we're in this time where we may be the sandwich generation, where we are caring for so many, and we we, ha we hold so many different hats. So we have we might have children, we ha might have aging parents or people in our life that we're supporting, plus our own careers that we're managing. So there, you're pulled in so many different directions that sex and intimacy are probably not necessarily the first thing that you're thinking about. And so that also contributes to this shifting desire and arousal. Oh my gosh. Just when you said that, right? I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's why, duh, that's why sex is about number 500 on a lot of people's lists. Right? I'm exhausted just hearing you say that that's precisely what a lot of people's lives look like and sound like. And I think it's normal to, that's how it's important to normalize. And I think when people come to speak to me about this and People don't come to speak to me about this first off. I ask in my office mm. because it's not a common topic that people feel comfortable bringing up to their doctor. But when people do come in, it is really because, you know, they're coming in for a different reason. And it's sort of this doorknob question that we call it in medicine, where as they're leaving the office, they're like, oh, by the way, I also have this to say. And then at that end, I don't have any time to address it, but this is such an important topic to address. So there's multiple reasons why desire changes as we get to this point in our life. But I think understanding it, normalizing it, and talking about it really does help because it acknowledges that this can be a time that certainly can be challenging, but by acknowledging it, we can make shifts and we can make these changes. Yes. And that is what we are going to try to do today. I, I'm going to hold on to doorknob issue because I find that menopause ends up going in that way too, right? It's Very the last so. thing you might throw at your doctor before you're walking out the door. Okay. Totally. Here's how we're going to break down the episode. We're going to break this down into um, four categories. And I got this from uh, Cleveland Clinic because they classify sexual dysfunction into four categories that are specifically, you were just mentioning uh, desire. So desi desire, arousal, orgasm, and pain disorders. Uh, we're going to get into some of the causes as well, because some of these, as you mentioned, could be psychological or and or physical. So we'll get behind as much as we can for each of these. So let's begin and dive further into what you already started to discuss, which was desire. So why is it and, and why for some does desi desire decline, but especially in midlife, you already started to allude to a lot of it. So let's, you know, go a little bit further into some of these social um, reasons why desire starts to dip right now. And then let's go a little bit deeper also into um, perhaps the physical. Let's dig into what are some of the conditions that might be affecting desire specifically? 
Right. So when we speak about desire, we think about the different factors of biological differences or, or, or physical changes that can happen as we age. And so hormonally, this is a big piece of what you're also addressing in your podcast, which I love so much. And so we know that specifically for men, they tend to have higher levels of test. They have higher levels of testosterone, which is considered to be the driver of desire, the hormone that drives desire. Women also have testosterone. But we don't talk about that very often. No, we and we've don't. been really afraid to like discuss that topic. And so more and more research is coming out. And we have leaders in the US specifically. And I'm hoping that we can start to expand that into this into Canada even more. But we know that levels of testosterone do influence our desire as well. As women. And so we do as women. So that's an important piece that we see declines of testosterone over time. And we don't treat women with testosterone um, officially it's sort of an off-label treatment that we have although it is becoming recognized that it can be safely done if it's monitored carefully so that's one piece of the puzzle is testosterone and we see that both in men and women we also know that despite that though estrogen and progesterone also influence desire too and so and partly we see that because of the physical changes that happen as i mentioned with the vaginal tissues and the pelvic floor and so when estrogen levels decline we do see that there is potentially something called genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which you have to address quite often. And that causes changes in the tissues of the pelvic floor and of the, the vaginal tissues and the vulvar tissue, the, the vaginal tissues that can lead to thinning of the tissues and pain. And that in itself, when you have pain associated with intercourse or intimacy, you're not, your desire decreases. Pain and that's one of the first things that we teach our medical students in my office and the residents is that we say, you know, you have to treat pain before you actually treat anything else mm. because people are not going to be wanting to, to engage and their desire is going to be low because it hurts. So that's a big piece of this too. We go into like other pieces where we think about psychologically what happens. Our body changes as we get older. We may notice it slowing down a little bit in some ways, although I don't think that's necessary all the time. But we might notice things like new diseases coming in that affect our health and our well-being. And so diabetes is one of the ones that can affect our, again, blood flow, um, and that affects desire and arousal together. I see desire and arousal, they're, they're all very commonly linked, right? Okay. And then also we see um, things like chronic diseases, joint pain, and other things as well that, again, we weren't addressing very well, especially in our perimenopausal and menopausal women, understanding that that can be a classic symptom of perimenopause and menopause. That can also contribute to people not feeling really up to physically being active and being intimate. So that's a big piece. Psychologically, I think you have to always address, and this is such a key factor, our relationship factors, mm. relationship with not only other people, but ourselves. And I think what's interesting to, to note is that when we understand desire and how people learn about sex, and you mentioned this in your intro around sex ed, boys learn about sex and about intimacy from under, like, play, like at masturbation and self-exploration. Girls tend to learn about intimacy and sex from boys. And that's mm. what's been found in studies. And so then wow. we reflect our pleasure based on our response from our partners and what then happens is that we don't know our own bodies in the same ways that help us understand what brings us pleasure, what, what help, helps me feel good. And I'm not just talking about penetration and intercourse, but like what brings us pleasure when you're learning about it through the context of somebody else's experience, mm. it's not going to be as impactful. Oh, that is same so way big. So that's a big piece yeah. where, where we understand that. Sorry, Mel, but that does affect things. 
100%. Now, let's talk about desire differences between uh, men and women, because so much of the prevailing belief out there is that men, they're just, they're running around horny all the time. Like, this is the stereotype. And I know it's not true, but it, it pervades our culture all the time, that men just are already for sex at any time, right? So let's talk about the stereotype versus the reality. And does it also exist, if it is true, do we also see it in gay and lesbian relationships? Or is this a heterosexual stereotype only? Mm -hmm. This is a great question and one that we're sort of understanding even more. But there's so many cultural norms around desire that it really influences how we individually see ourselves. And that's not fair. Again, desire is such a wide breadth of all the experiences of, again, psychologically, emotionally, physically, what we're experiencing within a cultural context. And culturally, we are, we are primed to think that, that men have higher desire than women. And certainly, the testosterone does affect that. But the truth is, it's very individual. And so it's not necessarily the case. Often what happens in the studies that have been done is that the, the individuals who come forward in these studies are people who seek out care. And these tend to be cisgendered heterosexual women. Yeah. And so we're missing a piece of that puzzle. And they may be presenting with lower desire because we are culturally, there's a stigma around women who have higher desire. Yes. And so they may not be seeing, seeking out care when there is a desire discrepancy between partners, because that is seen as a stigmatized area of, you mentioned Samantha Jones, sort of at the beginning, there was a negative connotation around someone like her because she was very open and had open conversations and was, I found her delightful in that how open she was, but culturally that was uncomfortable for many people. And so we live in a society where despite we seem to talk about sex a lot in many different ways, there's still a negative connotation around women having a level of desire and even even to the level of that is equal considered equal to men. But the truth is it's very variable and we're learning more and more about it because again the studies are are evolving as we as we learn more and more. You know, it is a stereotype. I just don't think that it's, it captures the complexity of of desire um, to say that it's just men versus women and there's such a difference with that. Certainly there are biological differences because of the hormonal differences. And in terms of like same-sex relationships, the research on same-sex relationships is really, you know, there's unique dynamics, but there's similarities and differences that exist regardless of heterosexual versus non-heterosexual relationships as well. So it's, it's, it's such an interesting topic, but again, very much based on our white. cultural, it's not black and white. And mm -hmm. it's very much, you know, I think there's just so much individual variability in this area. Okay, we're going to let ourselves off the hook then, uh, you know, and, and which leads me to the next question, because if there is a couple that is experiencing trouble, specifically in the area of desire, which I'll just call a desire gap, where one person is desiring sex and intimacy more than the other, and Oftentimes, the person who doesn't desire it as much or has low desire is often framed as the person with the problem yeah. rather than the person who does have high desire. We just look and blame person and just be like, oh, my gosh, you got to get this fixed because like, like I just need it and you don't. So how does a couple navigate this desire gap if one person wants sex and intimacy more than the other? Yeah, this is a big reason why people come in to talk about this 
And it's such a difficult topic because it can create rifts in relationships when there is this desired discrepancy. And it's not always that it's the, the female in the relationship or the male, like it can, it's variable and it also changes over time. So that's an important piece where, you know, different parts of our life stages, depending if you're going through fertility treatment, if you're, if you're like, uh, there's different things that we do as, as medical providers, like we put people on antidepressants and we put people on uh, birth control pills and that affects desire as well. So all of this changes over time, depending on your life stage and where you're at. Now, in terms of when I work with my patients in my practice, what we do is we start, and certainly this is where I think a sex therapist piece can come in very handy to have a neutral ground, somebody who's trained in navigating these conversations or a couples therapist who's trained to navigate these conversations. Because the first step that we talk about is open communication. And even before that, talking about this, when you're, if this is a, you can certainly come talk to your doctor if desire is a concern, see if there's a reason underlying that, like, is there a hormonal issue? Is there something else that could be at play? We can't underscore the importance of a history of trauma or otherwise that can influence people's ability to want to engage in intimacy. And so addressing those things can be really important first off as an individual. And as I mentioned that because females tend to learn about sex and intimacy from their partners rather than from self-exploration, sometimes taking that first step of self-exploration is a key step and actually understanding. And that again, doesn't, you can put, it can be toy based, it can be just touching, it can just be understanding what do you enjoy rather than in your own, from your own mindset, not through the lens of somebody else. So I often start with my patients instead of saying, instead of saying, come on, both of you come in together, we'll chat it out. Mm -hmm. It's actually more individual. I say, let's talk about your experience. Let me understand a little bit about what your experience was like. What was your sex ed experience like? What did you learn about? What was your home like when talking about sex and intimacy? Did you talk about it? Was there shame around it? Did you talk about it too much? Was it uncomfortable for you? Like it kind of goes the whole spectrum. It's really fascinating to see why people have these concerns based on their childhood experiences and their teenage experiences. I certainly do address if there's trauma as, as well, and we address that first. And then we then go to see, are there physical reasons why this is maybe happening in terms of desire discrepancy? Once we address those things, then I do go to the next level of like, let's talk with your partner and we talk about the three T's when you're having a discussion. So it's going to be timing. So make sure it's the right time. It's the right turf. So T being turf is not in the bedroom. Generally, we try to separate those discussions from the bedroom, have a neutral space that you can have that conversation and the tone that you're going to take. So we sometimes mm. coach my patients to say, listen, it can be really hard to have these conversations. And if it's the higher desired partner who's coming in and saying, I really don't know how to discuss this. I say, let's approach this with a lot of kindness to understand, like we may not understand all the complex levels that have contributed to this picture. So how do we do that? And again, that's where having a sex therapist or having someone in therapy who has that understanding to be able to delve into that depth, into that depth of, of experience is really important. Really so first off, it's open communication, right? So timing, tone, and turf. That's really the, the, the three T's of communication. Okay, that's a good takeaway. Right? So I think that's a really important one to, to keep. And then having an honest and open piece is what I've found really helpful. And I've had patients come in with their partners and say, can you be there with us while we talk about it? And that's something that we do sometimes. I'm a neutral person and because it, it can be highly emotional. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be tackled all in one go. So having just a gentle conversation of maybe over text message to say, you know, I'm having, I want to talk about this, like a practical piece may not be that you want to do it face to face. Maybe you want to go for a walk and have a conversation. So you're not making eye contact, but you're at least communicating. 
um, about these things can be helpful. I've had one patient do it over the phone with their partner because they couldn't manage to do it in person. At least they're talking. At least they're talking, right? Yeah, that's just so true. Okay, so what's the last piece of advice you would have, Dr. Sheila, if two couples or a couple is trying to have this discussion? Yeah, I think, you know, having a discussion and finding a middle ground can be helpful where you're not necessarily always going to match each other, but having some kindness around that and understanding that this changes. And again, normalizing, normalizing, normalizing that we are all fluid in our experiences and taking away the expectation that it's going to be amazing every single time, or it's going to be this easy conversation every time, just take that pressure off ourselves and understand that we're coming to a place and we can do that gently. And again, with the assistance of a neutral person can be very helpful. The only thing I'm going to add to that is if we would stop believing that movies are real. Rom-coms are not real. We're not having mind-blowing sex 365 days a year. So I wish that these directors would stop feeding us this garbage because it's not true. It's not true. You know? Um, Okay. I want to dive into a, a contentious issue for some because supplements, they are everywhere. We know that a heck of a lot of them do not live up to their promises, but there's a lot that catch our attention when it comes to increase your desire now, take X, take this, take that. Like, is there any validity to supplements that we can just buy off the internet to boost sex drive? No. So save your money and spend it on (laughs) lubrication. Like that is my (laughs) take home message from this. There is not good evidence for these supplements. They will cost you a lot of money. There's potential side effects. There's potential interactions with medications and they do not have good evidence behind them, but put it towards a good lubrication. Done. That is the takeaway. Okay. Save your money put it into lube instead. Yep. Um, enter the lube sponsor. Like, th- I mean, <laughs> that was it. That was it. Perfect. So we're going to dive into the next area, which is arousal. Although, as you have said, there is so much overlap between specifically like desire and then arousal. So I'll, I'll jump into the part, sort of the more medical and biological part of this, which is you know, okay, someone's decided that they they do want to have sex with one another and arousal is an issue. And so for me, one of the first things that comes to mind is for a man is erectile dysfunction and for a woman, maybe insufficient lubrication. And so let's talk about what might be behind this from the, the physiological or biological side of things for both men and, and women and why actually physically being unable to get aroused, uh, what might be behind each of those conditions? Yeah, this is, a, this is really the, the mainstay of what we do in, in the office, right? But this is where I wish that more people would come and speak to us because there are interventions that we have by understanding that there's more that we can do for these medically related changes that happen to them, not, phys- not medically, but physical changes that happen in the body that can affect arousal. So arousal disorders can affect really anybody, depending again on what's going on in their life, certain age, certain factors. We know it's not just midlife, it's also postpartum, when people are going through fertility treatment, like a whole spectrum of folks. Sometimes sexual debut, it's called, which is not a great term, but it's when people start um, becoming sexually intimate. That can be a time where they struggle with arousal. So there's so many different times throughout our lives that we can have issues with arousal. Specifically, when we talk about arousal, you mentioned like erectile dysfunction. Erectile dysfunction is very common, but it's not talked about enough. And that's a very common doorknob question, or it's something that patients will say, oh, 
you know, my partner suggested I come and talk to you about something. I don't really, I'm not that worried about it, but I would wait. And they wait, are like a female it. is coming in to talk to no, you. Like about- a male, male is coming in to talk to me about it or their partner has talked to me. Cause I sometimes see, I see a lot of families in my practice. And so they'll mention and say, the female will say, or the male will say, depending every, it can happen in heterosexual and, and non-heterosexual relationships where they'll say, can you talk to them about this? And it's not really my role to sort of bring up things, but, I, but, but, but it is interesting where I sometimes will use the option if I'm talking about high blood pressure, if I'm talking about diabetes, I'll say, you know, in addition to treating your diabetes or, or high blood pressure, sometimes people notice that there's a change in their sexual function and their arousal. Have you ever noticed that? So that's mm. sort of my end to discussing it. And then it becomes a whole discussion because they're like, oh, I'm so glad you asked because yes. And erectile dysfunction actually can be a marker because it's, it's a disease of blood vessels. And so erections happen because blood flows into the penis and it causes an erection to happen. And the firmness of the penis can change depending on how much blood flow is, is entering. And this can happen. This can change due to changes in testosterone. It can change in the arteries. And specifically in diseases like high blood pressure and diabetes, there's changes in the arteries that lead to less flow of blood. And so it's actually such an important indicator of potential cardiovascular disease to our patients. Mm. So if you have erectile dysfunction, and that's sometimes how I get to my patients, is I say, this could mean that something is going on with your heart. Because if the arteries in your penis are not filling with blood properly, this might also indicate that the arteries elsewhere in your body are also going to have a bit of a struggle. It's all connected. It's all connected. And so... But it's very fascinating because men sometimes don't want to talk to me about their hearts or other pieces, but they do want to talk to me about their erections. So it's very variable, the conversation. <laughs> Interesting. And so, and nerve damage can also cause this. So we know that folks who have maybe have nerve damage also related to diabetes, muscular, uh, multiple sclerosis, or otherwise they might have changes in their in erectile quality as well. So that's a physical reason why arousal can happen specifically in our patients who have a penis. Um, when it talks about menopause, we talk about the vaginal changes that can happen, specifically around estrogen. And because estrogen feeds the tissues of the pelvic floor and the vagina, and it can cause changes that can lead to thinning called genitourinary syndrome of menopause or perimenopause. We also notice it. We also notice these changes when people are breastfeeding or postpartum because there's changes also in the tissues related to when you're breastfeeding, you're actually estrogen levels drop to a level that's like menopause. And so sometimes for my patients who are in that state, we also need to treat. Um, and so that dryness can also cause pain and difficulty and difficulty with arousal and getting lubricated. So um, alcohol use, certain medications, as I mentioned before, can also contribute to arousal issues. So we know when we prescribe, and one of the things we don't do well enough in our in medicine is when we prescribe an antidepressant medication or blood pressure medication or birth control pill that has estrogen and progesterone, it can also affect your desire, your ability to become aroused. So these are common medications that we prescribe. We talk about the GI side effects all the time where like you might experience this, you might experience changes in sleep, or you might get some nausea with a birth control pill, but we don't talk about that this can actually affect your arousal and desire as well. I've never heard that before, to be honest. And I was on the birth control pill for 35 years. Yeah. So the birth control pill affects um, your sex binding hormone, like a, a protein in your body and that affects testosterone levels actually. And so we see that translate into changes in arousal and desire as well as a result. I want to talk about the big V because um, there is Viagra for men that we know about so, so well. Mm -hmm. Is there a female equivalent yet? No. 
So there is like hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which has a, a newer medication, Fildlanisteran, and which is in the States. Um, but it's kind of an interesting one because it has some potential side effects. And when the studies have been done, it shows that it really helps with increasing satisfying sexual encounters by like one episode per month. So that's it. That Yes, but there isn't like it works in a different way than Viagra does. Now, and partly that's because of cultural norms and the focus on sexual medicine being on male health rather than women's health. And studies are, there's so many studies done on men and very little studies done on women and how our bodies respond. So it's not that it's not possible to think about something like that around this, but when we talk about vaginal changes are, that are estrogen, we do have a good medication for that. It's estrogen. Oh. It's menopause hormonal therapy. And so we can treat the vaginal tissues and we can treat the menopause related changes with topical estrogen cream, which you've discussed previously in your other, um, other series, which are excellent. It's a safe option. We can use it in perimenopause. We can use it post breastfeeding. When we, when we're breastfeeding, we can use it in menopause as well. And then it helps to, with lubrication. It helps with the dryness. It helps with, um, that it feels nicer. And, and so that's really important. The other thing that we can use for vaginal dryness in women is anything with hyaluronic acid in it. So we commonly call it things like replens or repigyne, which are hyaluronic acid-based um, like moisturizers, basically, that help to lubricate and moisturize. They don't have the same effect because, again, it doesn't have estrogen in it, so it doesn't feed the, the, the tissues, but it does help for those who may not be able to take estrogen. But okay. generally, most people can take estrogen that's topical. So that's different than the systemic estrogens that you have addressed before, which are more the patch or the oral formulations of estrogen. Okay. Th these are all hot tips, hot tips, because I, I think there's going to be a lot of women listening and saying, well, I mean, maybe I'm just done for life. Like maybe my peak is behind me and I don't need to think about sex anymore. And I think what I'm hearing from you is like, there are a lot of very great options out there, um, particularly for for women who are in that um, you know perimenopausal menopausal era, that there is still hope. Which that's what this is all about. Um, you we started to talk about this a little bit, but let's get into pleasure and specifically the big O. I'm not talking about Oprah Winfrey. That is not this discussion. We're talking about orgasms. And it's a big part of the sexual experience for a lot of people. And we know it's different for every single person. It's a unique experience for every single person. But I read that uh, about 10 to 15% of women have never had an orgasm. And surveys are saying that up to a half of women are not satisfied with how often they reach orgasm. And that just like we discussed about the desire gap, that there is an orgasm gap between, in heterosexual scenarios, men and women in their encounters. In other words, more men having orgasms than women are even having orgasms in the same um, sexual encounter. So let's talk about orgasms and the orgasm gap. And I'm curious to know like, just how big of an issue that is, uh, why that's happening. And I always still like to talk about comparing heterosexual and homosexual relationships because, you know, looking at gender differences and sexual orientation differences, and can we garner some information from that so that, let's be honest, that women can experience more pleasure than a lot of us actually are right now? 
I mean, the orgasm gap is real, right? Like it's fascinating to see where there's a disparity between orgasm frequency and intense, like most frequency between heterosexual men and women. And when we look between same sex couples, there's less of a gap. And specifically when we look at female female relationships, it's really fascinating because there's even less of a gap. So we see this fascinating difference and partly, you know, it's related to a lack of understanding about our body parts. Like I have so many patients who come in, especially in the postmenopausal time, who are of a generation, especially who never actually looked or saw that part of their body. So I have my mirror in my office and I said, if they're comfortable, we'll kind of look at it together and understand what their anatomy looks like, understand what their body looks like so that they can then go home and understand it themselves. Because that again goes back to the conversation that we had earlier of, how did you learn about sex and intimacy is through others rather than through yourself and self-exploration. So that's a big piece. It's a lack of understanding on both sides. So sometimes, and then we talk about like, we joke about where's the clitoris all the time. And it's such a huge piece of our cultural nomenclature that it becomes normalized that, oh, it's just so hard to find. It's not that hard to find. <laughs> and this is where and it's large. It's not just the tip that we see. It's actually like has branches and it's, it's quite big, but we don't know that because we don't know about female anatomy in the ways that we should know about it because some of it's internal and that's understandable. And our sex education was really lacking around pleasure piece and understanding that because the clitoris wasn't seen to have a function. So culturally it's ignored. And then there's the psychological uh, issues that come up with performance issues and anxiety and worry and stress around that and the pressure that that we feel and face and women tend to carry a little bit more of the mental load of households. Um, I certainly see that in my own practice. I see that in my friendships and my and myself that this is just like we carry more and it becomes more difficult to be able to have a moment of mindfulness and to have that connection to be able to do that. And orgasm is often seen as, you know, for, for men, it's seen as something that happens that's related to ejaculation. Women orgasm in different ways, right? So it's not just from, and often it's not from penetration. It's from stimulation of the other parts of our, our anatomy and our mind and other parts that we find actually pleasurable. So it sounds like masturbation is a big part of this discussion. And again, let's talk about all the stigma and shame. Listen, I was raised as a good Catholic girl. And my gosh, I remember from a very young age how that was equated with, you know, touching yourself or masturbation. Like that's a sin. And, and like those are very strong words to put into a child's head when it comes to exploring their own bodies. But even if you're not a religious person, I have a daughter. I know you have a daughter and it mm. comes from like even just with developmentally. I think my daughter was, I mean, she'll kill me if I'm talking about this. Hopefully she doesn't listen. But it was like four, age four or something, and she was starting to explore herself. The way that I knew that I would react or her father would react, I knew would make an impact for the rest of her life, mm -hmm. including down the road when it came to masturbation, pleasure, and sex and orgasm. I knew because I was raised with so much fear and shame around masturbation that I'm going to make or break my daughter in this moment. Like not to put too much pressure on parents because God knows we have enough pressure, mm. but I actually was very mindful when that started to happen, which was totally normal yep. to remember, I'm going to read and I need to figure out how to talk through this in a healthy way, because this will determine maybe if she even asks and demands for her own pleasure in a right. sexual encounter when she's an adult. So 
Um, there is a link with from being a child to, as you say, you're having adult women in your office and you're having to show them around their own body. Let's talk about if someone is listening and they are in midlife and maybe this is their first kind of permission. Like we're totally. telling them, you're telling women, explore yourself. What can they do right now that can help and maybe yeah. close the orgasm pleasure gap? I love this because I think there's so much stigma around it, as you say. And I think just to go very briefly to the piece around parents and how prevention is actually key around a lot of this. And if we can actually have these conversations early with our little ones and normalize and not stigmatize masturbation or self-pleasure or just pleasure in general, it's a really key piece to their future, um, being able to be able to say what they want, to be able to consent if they want to and say no when they don't want to. Like this is, these are key messages that start at such a young age. It's hard to know where to start that conversation. There's a really beautiful book by Peggy Ornstein. She writes about one, there's a book about how to talk to boys about sex and how to talk to girls about sex. That's a key book that really helps parents navigate these conversations. So I recommend that to all my patients um, because if you have little ones at home, it really does help navigate that conversation. Okay, so we can't turn back the clock and try to relearn sex ed as kids, uh, which is where some of us did or didn't even learn in the first place. So someone is seeing you, maybe someone like me, she's in her 40s or she's in her 50s, and she's, you know, this is a really important part of her life that she wants to learn about herself more and start to experience orgasms, maybe for the first time or maybe better or more. Where does she even begin? This is a great question. Um, and I appreciate that we're having this conversation because I think even having this first discussion to open up the, the normalization that this can be difficult is so important. And so when I talk to my patients about this, I say, you know, let's talk about your past, understanding what was difficult, like you said, like how you learn the shame, if there's a history of trauma, acknowledging those things and not forcing anything too quickly. So I'm not saying to run out to a sex shop or to go online and buy any toys or lubrication. First things first is like when we talk about pleasure, pleasure can be non-sexual in so many ways. And so what brings you joy? What brings you pleasure? What, what, what makes you happy? is a first step for many of my patients is identifying that because that's actually something that many of us are disconnected from in our lives, separate from sex and intimacy. So starting with that as one piece and then moving towards opening up the discussion around what gives you pleasure in terms of sexual touch or intimacy. And then you might want to start to look at if it feels comfortable buying some lubrication and using toys and doing this on your own or with a partner if you have a, some, a trusted space or partners if you have a trusted space that you feel comfortable having these communication pieces with. There are wonderful books around this like mindfulness-based um, books with Lori Brado. She's excellent. Um, she talks a lot about this topic and I think that's a really key piece is mindfulness, self-compassion, using those techniques to really work towards understanding yourself. And if anatomy isn't an area that you're comfortable with, which again, many of my patients don't necessarily know what their body looks like and what parts bring them pleasure, having a mirror, taking a look. I, again, pelvic floor physios are, I wish everyone could have a pelvic floor physio because this is a, such a key piece of our health, especially midlife. So I wish everyone could have a pelvic floor physio in their back pocket. And I certainly have learned a lot from my pelvic floor physio colleagues. They're incredible. They know so much around the anatomy. Uh, I went to a pelvic floor physio when I was post when I was pregnant. And 
the way that she was able to teach me, and I always give a disclaimer to my patients, if you're going to a public Clarizio, they do internal examinations. And so that is an important step, but they do so in such a trauma-informed way that is gentle and very much at the pace that you feel comfortable with. And they are an excellent resource for folks who have difficulty with arousal or desire, especially if there's a physical reason happening or, or dryness. But even if that's, it's not physical and it's just relearning about your body, they can be a great tool and a resource to help understand, here's what my anatomy looks like. This is where my muscles are. My muscles might feel tight for some reasons. Here's what we can do to work on it. And they can give you techniques that are very practical and helpful. So yes, I think the role of pelvic floor physio is incredible. I think alongside that, you can find and seek out if, if it's inter interesting to you to understand a little bit more about why it might be difficult to have um, intimacy or otherwise to talk with a therapist or a certified sex therapist can be helpful. And every province has their own um, certification program for that and finding someone you can find online. Um, and they can, they're certified, they're often social workers or psychologists, and they have incredible expertise around guiding individuals through having these conversations with themselves or with their partners uh, as well. And then generally, I think um, slowly, slowly being gentle with yourself and then pressing the boundary a little bit as you get comfortable to see what where that takes you. So maybe initially it is just that walk and you understand this is what brings me pleasure to then the next step being I'm going to use lubrication. And again, lubrication is our friend. Like this is such an important, important <laughs> discussion. So even with self-play or with play with partners, lubrication is such a key piece. Because again, if you are struggling with arousal or desire, sometimes forcing that without having some lubrication play can actually lead to more pain. And then it leads to less desire in the long run and arousal in the long run. As a result, it becomes a cycle that we need to break sometimes. So let's talk about on the other end of the spectrum. So, you know, much has been said about, you know, healthy relationships and having good communication and having sex in your relationship. Um, and, you know, how many times a week, a month, is it normal? Is it not normal? I want to talk about that. But then I also want to talk about the other end of the spectrum, which is some relationships that are completely sexless. and where that couple stands. So as a physician, is there a benchmark? I feel like I know what you're going to say, but I have to ask the question because people are stuck on numbers. So is there a quote unquote normal amount of times a week that a couple or a month that a couple should be intimate, whatever that means for them? Uh, what does the research say? I'm I'm so curious to think what you what you think I'm going to say. Uh, but because, it's <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say I'm going to say the doctor is going to say there's no such thing as normal. Whatever's normal for you is normal. That's exactly it. Yeah. And I know that's a hard answer because I think people do really want to hold on to having a number to be able to feel like they're normal to be like, "Oh, I'm above that or I'm below that." But the truth is, is it depends on your own comfort, what you're happy with, and what works for you. And so having a specific number is not helpful. It actually just creates more of more stigma, more shame that you're not either reaching it or you're reaching it too often. Like it's really <laughs> not a great marker for us because there is no normal number because everybody is so variable and we all change. There might be times in our lives that we're, we're having more, more sex more frequently. There's times where we're not at all. And we have to be kind to ourselves and gentle with ourselves to understand that setting a standard of on the average report, like you read Cosmo or you read all these other magazines that say, oh, the average person is having this much sex at this time. And I read that too. And I'm like, oh no, like 
there's something wrong with me then. Yeah. And we have to stop saying that something is wrong with us. And so we have to shift the narrative from culturally normalized ways that we have said that there's a normal amount of sex that you should have per week and the number of orgasms that you should have. And that means that you have a good relationship. That is an unfair standard that really hurts us. And it specifically hurts women. And I, it hurts everyone actually, but it really does hurt women because I think it really plays up against us and it actually it's destructive rather than helpful. Okay, Dr. Sheila, what about this? You are in a long-term relationship and there is no sex at all. Maybe there hasn't been in a really long time. And some people from the outside or that you might share with might say, ooh, that's trouble. What do you have to say? What well, is it a problem? Like, I think that's where the question is. And intimacy means different things for different people. I have couples in my, in my practice who say, I love that we get to go for a walk together and that is our intimate act. And that is comforting to me. I feel heard. That is what I need. I think we have to expand the definition of what intimacy is and what that means to different people. Again, it goes back to, it's not just penetration. It's not just an orgasm. It means different things to different people. And so if it is an issue though, that's where we do have, we want to address it. And that's where we want to see what's going on. So again, it goes back to if there is an issue and this is seeping into your relationship and causing issue, or it's making you feel uncomfortable for whatever reason that is, listen to that voice and get help. And that's where speaking to a sex therapist or speaking to a therapist in general, speaking to your doctor to see if there's any other reason why we might, you might be not wanting to engage when you previously were, and this is a bother to you now there are things that we can do. And I hope, and I think this is what's beautiful about your podcast, Mel, is that you are trying to empower individuals to seek out support where we often do not, where there are options of support available. And so I love that we're talking about this because you don't have to suffer through it, but you also don't have to make it an issue if it's not an issue to you. Great point. I want to talk about porn quickly because you know, because the majority of people who are listening to this are women. And um, as you had said so like astutely at the beginning of this, that women and girls were not learning about sex through self-exploration as a lot of boys do. We learn it from either boys or from other external factors uh, rather than teaching ourselves about our body. And pornography is in the middle of that, if not front and center and first. And so there, there's a whole other podcast just for the de destructive impact of learning about sex through pornography, because it often in heterosexual porn is so male centered and male orgasm centered and male pleasure centered. So when we are trying to help women with this show, how is a woman at this stage of the game, you know, again, and I keep talking about this from midlife onward, how do we reframe the sexual experience, whatever that d is for you, so that it is pleasure driven rather than performance driven so that we can regain or gain power over our own pleasure in this situation, which I think in an ideal world should be mutually beneficial to all the parties involved. So what is your advice for someone watching saying, you know what, you got to get the performance part out of your head and put pleasure at the forefront. How do we get there? Well, you know, I think we always go back to when I talk to my patients, but it's uncomfortable for some of them because for me, when I say I'm like, pleasure is a measure and they go, oh, 
And I, that's not my line. That's like Emily Nagoski's line, but it's beautiful, right? Like it's such a simple statement, but it's uncomfortable for many of us to understand that. And I think we are, again, societally, we're culturally influenced to not seek out pleasure. We are influenced to become pregnant and have babies. And that's the purpose of our bodies. And that's the purpose of our sexual organs, rather than understanding that there's pleasure is an important part of our lives. It affects us in many ways. And that's okay. And so I think that does go back to sexual education, talking about open communication. Communication is lubrication in, in itself. And I think that's such an important piece. Oh my gosh, say that people. again. Communication is lubrication. Like yes. when we talk, when we are open, again, going back to the three T's of like the timing, the tone, that's important, right? So communication is lubrication. And then challenging the societal norms and the pornography that we see and we understand, like not, not all porn is bad. Most of, most people who watch porn are watching it because it gives them some some pleasure as well. But there are forms of it that are becoming as we over time, it's becoming a little, it's becoming less, it's becoming more problematic in ways. Um, but there's other things like ethical porn and otherwise that we that we can look towards rather than the typical porn that is very male centric, as you said. And so again, I think we go to like a non judgmental space. It is okay to feel pleasure. It is a good thing to feel pleasure. Your body is just not meant to be something that produces or has an ejaculation or has this happen. It is, it's okay to feel pleasure. And it's actually very joyful. And I think that when you feel that, you feel more connected to yourself. You feel more connected to the people around you, partners or otherwise. And it helps us just kind of get through the day. Like life is hard enough. Why not like take a moment, seek out support if it's not working for you talk to somebody who has expertise in this area, get the help if there's a medical reason behind what might be happening in terms of the changes that happen midlife and otherwise, and then see what we can do. Because again, pleasure is, is an important part of our lives and it doesn't all have to be penetration and sex, but it is so key. And having this conversation is part of that where I hope that after people listen to this, they can go and talk to their themselves in the mirror or talk to their partners or talk to their friends and say, you know, what brings you joy? What brings you pleasure? And we can learn from each other and normalize it and enjoy ourselves a bit more. And I want to end with this because you are a family physician and you prescribe all kinds of things to people to get healthier. So do you ever prescribe sex to somebody? Do I ever prescribe sex? So I have prescribed date nights. I have prescribed walks. I have not written a, because I, I have a, an EMR. So I have an electronic medical record and I write this out and I'm like, put this on your fridge. Date night, once a week. This is what we're, this is what you're doing. So I do prescribe things like that. I haven't prescribed sex, but I have to say what's fascinating. I love this story. When I was starting out in practice, I was working at a sexual health clinic and a lovely lady came in and she was in her eighties. And she, and our demographic usually is, excuse younger. Like we're usually 20 to 40 in that, in that clinic. And she came in with her granddaughter translating. And she, her granddaughter was talking and sharing about the sexual health. And she's like, she wants to get tested. And I said, that's great. So tell me a little bit about your sexual health. And we're going through her history. And she had a younger partner who was 55 and she was in her 80s. And I was like, in my back, I have to keep a bit of a poker face around this, but I'm just like, this is amazing. Like, I love this, but she's, this is for her and she's healthy. And then when I was doing her examination, it was incredible because her vaginal tissues were lubricated and she didn't have any atrophy or anything. And I said, what are you using? 
Like, are you using uh, hyaluronic acid? Are you on estrogen? Like, I don't understand how this, because this is, there's typical changes that happen yeah. because of estrogen decline. She's like, no, I don't use anything. I just have a lot of sex. <gasps> and it was this amazing conversation through her granddaughter. It was this very surreal experience, yes! but I loved it. It was through her granddaughter. And she was so open about the experience that she was having and that she was enjoying it. And she was having pleasure and she didn't have to live with what we typically see in terms of the gender urinary changes that happen. She didn't have recurrent UTIs, which is another thing that ha happened. So she was using, she was not using, but she was having sex regularly. And that really helped with her vaginal tissues. And it just really helped her life in general, right? So I do think it's fascinating. I, I, I think prescribing sex is one of these things where I sort of prescribe it because I'm talking about it often and talking about the value. But we know that when people are connected and, and, and engaging in intimacy, they generally are happier too. We can't underscore the importance of like recognizing that mental health conditions, that there's disproportionate, like we talk about pleasure very openly. Not everyone has the same access to pleasure in the same ways. You know, I work a lot in access and equitable access to care. And we know that certain populations don't have the same ability to take time off to work on self-care activities. They carry multiple jobs. They have um, racialized individuals carry more stresses than others due to systemic issues that are at play. And so this conversation is hard to sometimes relate to. And so I want to acknowledge that as well, where we need to have that discussion acknowledgement of that. But there are things that we can do. Medically speaking, if there are medical changes happening or physical changes happening that we can address um, as a starting point for many. I end every episode asking my guest the same question. What is your number one piece of advice on how to age powerfully? I mean, I think we just said it just now with the sex. I think, I mean, intimacy, I think lubrication, don't be afraid to use lubrication, have fun with it. Pleasure is the measure and it's okay to feel joy. And it's okay if you're not feeling that it's please do age powerfully by seeking out support because we have supports available to you um, in our offices. And if you don't have that with your family doctor, which I understand is not the case for many, there are sexual health clinics across the country that will that have sex educators and have counselors that can give you some guidance. Or now if you listen to this podcast, go with that information and ask for that help because you have that ability to ask for that help. Um, and if it's not coming to you in that way, there are other clinics that can be supportive. So that's a long-winded answer, but I do think like it's okay to feel pleasure. That's my thing. And I think if you can feel pleasure, you will age powerfully. 100. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. And lubrication. <laughs> and buy lube. Um, Dr. Sheila, this has been an eye-opening and a pupil dilating conversation, invigorating in all the ways. I garnered so much. Titillating. We said it. All the adjectives. I'm so glad we did this in such an open, easy way because I think there's just not enough of this. And hopefully this does start to open the door a little bit to conversations with yourself and or with your partner and your friends in a more healthy, non-judgmental, open way. So um, to quote one, I think George Michael's song, sex is natural, sex is fun. Yes. Uh, I, I know there's another line to that. Not everybody does it, but everybody should. I think I can't remember. Um, I say all of that, that thank you for your wisdom and for all the work that you're doing to help uh, people and couples everywhere. And thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for you and all the people that are hearing this.
Thank you. And um, listen, I hope everybody here loves what they heard today. I'm sure that they did. Um, and Dr. Sheila, if anybody wants to find you or any more of the kind of work that you do, where can they find you? Well, we're opening, hoping to open up this discussion further uh, in Canada. We don't have very much of this. And so we're looking at ways of exploring to increase access to care around this because there are no like like insurance covered options in Canada. Um, it's all privately funded. So it's unless you have insurance plans. So we're hoping to build this. So stay tuned to the space. I will be sharing it on my Instagram channel as we start to expand access to care around this kind of care. Okay, great. Do you want to share your Instagram handle? Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. It's uh, Dr. Sheila W. At Dr. Sheila W. At Dr. Sheila W. Okay, that's where we can find you. Thank you so, so much. Uh, please give Dr. Sheila a follow at Dr. Sheila W. If you'd like to keep up to date with everything that she is doing. The show's Instagram is at Aging Powerfully with MG. Uh, my personal Instagram, which is really not so personal. It's all out there, by the way. It's at Melissa Grello. And we've got our website as well. So it's Melissa Grello, uh, Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello.com. Catch us on all the platforms, leave a review, rate us, and I would love your feedback. You can always send me emails as well through the website. And I love to read everything that you're thinking about the show and suggestions. I've already gotten a ton of amazing suggestions for future episodes that you want to hear. So keep those coming because it gives me great ideas. Thank you, every single one of you, for joining me in this conversation. And I will see you next time on Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello.